went up too high. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to the citizen of the country who sent him to the field to feed pigs. He longed to feed his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but he knew he no one gave him anything. When he came to the sen his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father's and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still along the way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field when he came to near the house and heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked, what is going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he, because he has come back safe and sound. The older brother came angry, refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have slaved for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when, his son, when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes and come home, you killed the fatted calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate to be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. Thank you, Sally. Before we, before we pray this morning, I want us to just take a moment. It's Memorial Day weekend, and it's a fitting time to just take a moment uh, and just bow our heads in silence. And I just want to invite you to um, not only just do so in, in remembrance of those who have given their lives for our freedom, but just take a moment in the quiet of your heart to thank God for the freedoms that we have uh, as a nation to be able to meet here freely today. So let's just take a moment and bow our heads.
Heavenly Father, this weekend is a time when many of us get to travel and celebrate and barbecue, and, and those are wonderful things, but that, that freedom came at great cost, and we just, we just want to thank you, God, for giving us the, the privilege and the ability to be able to um, meet legally and freely as believers in a, in a country such as this. We, we often take that for granted. We thank you for those whose, whose lives were given to bring us that freedom. We ask that you would be near to those who are grieving at, at the loss of, of those who have died in combat and who have given their lives for that, that freedom. Lord, encourage and strengthen them and be near them this weekend in a special way, God. We thank you for the privilege of coming together to worship you. We pray, God, that you would be first and foremost on our hearts today, that the honoring the name of Jesus would be the top priority in our hearts. And as we study your word together, Lord, give us hearts to receive your truth. May we not uh, dismiss a story that is familiar to us, but be ready to hear what the, the Spirit of God lays upon each individual heart today. We ask God that you might um, give us hearts that are humble to respond to your word in the ways that you're calling us to, to be willing to confess and turn from sin and to receive your loving forgiveness and, and grace. We thank you, God, for the privilege of being here once again and being with brothers and sisters in the Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you haven't already done so, I want to invite you to join us in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And um, as you do so, just a, a couple things at the outset I just want to mention. First of all, I just want to say thank you to all those who helped uh, with the chairs and moving chairs in and out. Appreciate your, your time and your sacrifice there, and, and thank you for doing so. Um, Someone, someone said that the, the chairs are a, a little bit too stiff and they might have trouble falling asleep during the message now, so apologize for that in advance if that's your story. <laughs> um, also, I, I wanna, we don't always draw attention to things in the bulletin. We hope that you get a chance to leaf through that, if, not, if you haven't already, later on today and, and um, uh, notice a couple of things. But uh, I do want to mention, as, as some of you know, um, Scott Story went home to be with the Lord after a long, long battle with cancer. And for those of you, you who knew him and uh, spent some time in prayer with him, that was a really up and down time. We, we thought that there, there was going to be some earthly healing, and, and, and then that wasn't the Lord's, Lord's will in this case. And so uh, we have the information there on his services. Uh, they're going to be held downstate on June 10th. Uh, so just make note of that if you're uh, if you knew Scott or if you're able to get down there and support the Lisa and the family. I know that more than anything they would greatly appreciate your prayers. This is the 
this is the last in our, our series of messages that we've been called, calling the hard sayings of Jesus. And we've looked at some really challenging words, and, and there, are, there are many more that we could, we could look at. And we really didn't even go over some of the, the hard-to-understand passages, of which there, there are many in the words of Christ. But we, we really just spent some time looking at the ones that really can kind of rub us the wrong way, the ones that we understand, and we're just kind of quick to dismiss in many cases. In this last one, as I was praying about what to, what to finish the series with, the Lord laid this on my heart. And as, as you heard Sally read, you may think, well, I don't, I don't get it. Why is this a, a hard saying? Or I, to be more technical, this would be a hard a story, a parable. What is it about the story of the prodigal son that's, that's so hard to receive. I mean, this is a beautiful story, and many of us smile, and our hearts are warmed as we read the, the welcome of the Son back into the fold. But as we go through the story, we're, we're, we're going to start by kind of walking through the whole story here at once. We're going we're to reflect on why this call to come home, this welcome to the Father, may be for some of us a truly hard saying, a truly difficult word to receive. And as we walk through this, hopefully that will become apparent as the Spirit of God unfolds these truths to us. So the whole, the whole passage in, in chapter 15, is a, it's, a, it's three consecutive parables of, of things that are lost. We have lost sheep, the, the lost coin, and the lost son. And the longest of these well-known stories is, of course, what we call the prodigal son. Probably isn't the best name for the story because it, it really is not just about one lost son, but as we're going to see here, it's... it's about two lost sons. Maybe a, a better title would be to call this the parable of the two lost sons and the compassionate father, but it's not quite as catchy as the prodigal son, so I'll be not going to catch on. And, and as we read this story, we traditionally look at there's, there's one bad son who made a lot of bad choices, and then there's this other son who often gets neglected, and he's considered kind of the good son. But what we're going to see is that both sons are alienated from the father in different ways. Both sons really represent the, the, the two kind of two broad streams of, of ways of missing the father. You, you're, we're going to see someone who, who goes their own way and just is going to do whatever they want. And we're going to see someone who... who on the outward, has their act together and, and looks like, like they've got life figured out and they're, they're, they're dutiful servants or, or children. But, but we're going to see it in both of these stories, both, both are missing the Father. And, and so um, this whole, these whole sequence of parables here was started off in, in verse 1. We didn't read this, but it says, All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And we're used to hearing that. We're used to Jesus welcoming those who were castaways, those who were not welcome in other circles. But this was difficult for the Pharisees, the religious leaders, to hear. And it says in verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And it's that statement that provides the catalyst for these three stories about three lost things and and the way that the Father welcomes them back home. The way that the, the one that had lost them invites them 
and celebrates their return. And so what we see in this story here, and, and like I said, we're just going to kind of walk through this sort of quickly and then sort of process what God might be saying to us. We see here that this younger son comes to his dad and says, Father, give, this is verse 12, give me a share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to him. And verse 12 is just, there's so much culturally packed in there that we, we can't fathom the reality of what, what that younger son just said to his dad. What he's asking, what he's demanding, what he's implying through that request. Give me my inheritance. Many of you know this, but this is the... This, this request, this share of the estate is, is, a, is a request to, for his father to be dead. This, this is what would have been coming to him had his father died. This is his inheritance. And he's essentially looking at the father and saying, since you won't go ahead and die already, give me the stuff that I have coming to me. Uh, in, in fact, the, the, the Greek here is interesting because he asks his father for a share of the estate and that's one Greek word. And then the text says the father divided the assets or the property. And that's another Greek word that, that is the, the, the Greek word for life. And it literally is saying that the father divided his life before him. One commentator said to lose part of your land was to lose a part of yourself and a major share of your standing in the community. This request was a heartless and cruel request. And the response of the, the father, so the, the request was shocking, but the response of the father is even more shocking, that he actually did it. He just, he says, okay, go for it. Our first instinct would probably be anger or retaliation, or cut him off, but not the father. And so verse 13 says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate and foolish living. So he just utterly blows everything. In fact, the, uh, the Greek there, again, indicates that uh, he, just, he utterly wasted it. I mean, the, the picture there, even in the, the original language, is sort of tossing your, your possessions into the wind, like throwing money out the window of your car. He just blew it all. And you can imagine on what, in the story, Jesus doesn't tell us what, but you could just use your imagination. Whatever squandering indicates to you, he just squandered. He blew it. He didn't invest it. He didn't, he didn't uh, buy some real estate or anything. He, he just squandered it. And so verse 14 tells us that after he'd spent everything, the severe famine strikes the country and he had nothing. Pretty self-explanatory. All of a sudden, he's out of money and the economy takes a downturn and he is left with, with nothing, and he's hurting. And so he decides to go work for someone in the country. Verse 15 says he begins to feed pigs, which, again, you, you know, culturally, is a, is a Jewish person working with unclean animals. Jesus could have chosen any way to represent this young man's destitution and, and, and the work that he was willing to do, but he chooses raising and feeding pigs and to the, the Jewish audience, they would have recoiled. That was an unclean animal. This, this, this guy, Jesus, Jesus picked a way to communicate. This guy was at rock bottom and was willing to do anything just for a few pennies. In fact, verse 16 says he longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one would give him anything. I mean, this, this, this guy... 
has utterly made a ruin of his life. He has nothing. He has nobody. He is far from home. Tells us in verse 17, it says, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. So he realized that, that even being a servant in his father's house would be better than this lot. And I love how verse 20 continues. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. It's unbelievable, this, this word compassion in the Gospels, as far as I could tell, is only used of, of the Father or of Jesus. It's this, it's this word that just means this, this affection comes from deep within. This wasn't manufactured by the Father. This wasn't some obligatory response uh, culturally or, or even uh, religiously. In fact, the idea that he sees him from a long way off really gives us the picture that the father's there waiting and looking. You can imagine the, the father walking down the drive each way. I don't know if they called it a drive since they, I mean, I don't, they drove things. They drove chariots or whatever, so call it a drive. Whatever that, the, the estate looked like, imagine him scanning the horizon probably multiple times a day. The story doesn't tell us how long the son was gone, but the picture here creates that the father was, was waiting, was anticipating, hoping that the son would come back. He wasn't sitting there stewing. He wasn't sitting there plotting revenge. He was looking, waiting, longing for the son to come back. The picture says that he embraced him. In fact, he ran to him, and a lot of commentators believe that that, just, that would have been utterly Unheard of for an older man to, to do such a thing. He ran and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And notice that the, the son hasn't done anything yet. The, the son hasn't cleaned up his act, hasn't demonstrated that he's repentant. The, the father was just there waiting to welcome him. What a beautiful picture. And so the son repeats what he had thought about back in the pig pen. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate with a feast because the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. And there's just this lavish celebration of the son who's returned. It wasn't just, the father didn't just go out and order pizzas. He didn't just say like, oh, hey, this is, this is good. I'm glad he's back. Like he went all out and through the biggest extravaganza. I mean, we're in open house season and some of you have been planning an open house or you've, you've done this before where you plan for months and months or imagine even a wedding banquet that sometimes the planning can take a year or more in, in preparation for this. The father was like, let's do whatever we can to celebrate in the most lavish way. We're not just like, woohoo, he's back. But we're going nuts. We're going crazy. He is back. We are going to party. 
and he welcomes the son home. And so often we end the story there, and we forget about the older brother. We end the story in verse 24, but we forget that there's more to this story. There's another brother, and the older son was in the field, and he hears the the music as he comes close to the house. There's dancing going on, and he he's baffled. This is not usual. This is quite the celebration. This is quite the feast. So he summons a servant, trying to figure out what's going on. The servant tells him, your brother's back. The father slaughtered the, the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. And notice this heartbreaking verse, verse 28. This, the elder brother's immediate response was anger. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. What a, I mean, we read that and we just, our, our first response is probably like, what a jerk. Are you kidding me? How could you not be excited that he's returned? I mean, that your younger brother's back. And he's, he's not just like, it's not that he's indifferent it's not that he's just a little bit like, ah, we could have killed the skinny calf for him. Come on. But no, he's, he's angry. And he won't even go in. There, there's a party right at his doorstep. Right there. A lavish feast. Music and dancing. Celebration. And he won't even go inside. What's going on in his heart? That would cause him such resentment. So the father comes out and he's, he pleads for the son to join him. And the son's response. And you could just, you can hear the seething anger in his voice. I'm sure he's spitting these words out. Look, I've been slaving many years for you and I never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me a goat so that I could go celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes... He's devoured your assets with prostitutes. You slaughter the fatted calf for him. I didn't even get a goat, and you're giving him the best that we have. What is up with that? He won't even refer to this young man as his brother. He calls him your son in verse 30. And even just his disrespectful tone to his father. Look here. I've been slaving. This response reveals is that his heart was just as far from the father as, it, as the younger brothers was at the beginning of the story. I did all of this stuff for you, and you never threw me a party. The elder brother had faithfully served his father, but not from a heart of love, a heart of duty and obligation, one that he felt he was owed. So that's it. The summary of the story, but let's come back to why this might be a hard saying. Why Jesus' story might be hard for some of us to receive and hear today. I'm going to break it apart. The first question we want to ask is, why might this be a hard saying for the younger brother or the younger sister in the room? Why might this be troubling. Well, the first reason is that it means coming to grips with your sin. If you look back at verse 17, the son, it says of the younger brother, or the younger son, when he came to his senses, like he had to come to an awareness 
that he was messed up. Now, now for, for those of us reading the story, we're like, it's obvious. He's, he's licking his chops over pig slop. We're like, uh, duh, he's at rock bottom. Why would he not come to his senses? I think what Jesus wants us to see here is that when, when we're doing our own thing, sin is always eating pig slop. We may not see it that way, but, but that's what it is. It's wallowing in the mire and the filth with the pigs. And it's, it, for, for those standing outside the story like we are here, we're like, ugh, it's disgusting. And of course he's a wreck. But you know what? When we're in the middle of sin, when we're giving in to temptation, when we're pursuing our own way, saying, forget you, God, I'm, I'm, I'm going. We're doing the exact same thing that the younger son is doing, and we so often don't realize it. For many of us, maybe we're there right now, the light bulbs haven't gone on, that, that we haven't looked around ourselves and seen that we're covered in pig filth. We haven't seen that we're right in the middle of it. We're not at the point where we're ready to acknowledge that. God wants us to see we've got to wake up. We've got to come to our senses. We've got to come to a place like the son says in verse 21, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. We need to have that level of brokenness. Until we do, when we keep justifying our sin and excusing it or, or saying, listen, you don't understand my circumstances or, or it really wasn't that bad. Look at this guy over here. Whatever the excuses might be, we're not going to receive the welcome from the Father that, that we need. We're not going to be ready to receive that because we haven't, we haven't admitted that we need to go home. We haven't admitted that we're far from home. For those of you who might be in that boat, this may be a hard saying for you today. This story might be a hard story to hear because maybe, maybe you're not at the place where you want to turn back yet. You're enjoying yourself too much in your sin and wandering from Christ. One writer says, It was at this point in the story that the son finally offered the kind of repentance that Jesus was talking about all the way through this parable, a repentance that responds to the Father's love. No more labor demands, no more strategies for having this relationship on his own terms, no more telling his father what to do, just a free confession of guilty sin placing himself entirely under the Father's mercy. This morning, is there, is there sin that Holy Spirit's convicting you of that you've just become okay with, that you've excused, that you've justified, rationalized? The Father's calling you home. He's calling you to come to grips with your sin and what he says about it. But secondly, this, this is maybe a challenging statement for the prodigal because it means turning away from your sin and allowing yourself to be embraced by the Father. This can be a painful process. Turning from what has captivated your attention, but until you see, until you see what you're pursuing as pig slop, you're going to keep turning back to it. Until you look at your sin through the eyes of Christ and see that it's what took him to the cross, we're going to keep going back to it. And the process of, of pulling away from that can be a painful process. The process of restoration can be 
a hard one. One of my favorite book series, uh, I read them to all my boys, and Owen and I are working through it, is the Chronicles of Narnia. And if you've read it, you know why. It's just such a beautiful, beautiful set of stories. And, and one of my favorite volumes in the story is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It just so happened that Owen and I are on this, this book right now, and we read this section of it. There's a there's a character in the story, and the book begins introducing this character, and it's one of my favorite opening lines to any, any novel I've ever read. The book begins this way. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. I love that line. And as you begin to get introduced to the character, he's, he's definitely a Eustace Clarence Scrub. Lewis named him perfectly. He's annoying. He grumbles at everything and everybody. He gets under everybody's skin. He's mean and defiant and cantankerous and arrogant. All, all these just these just uh, qualities wrapped up into, into just a little punk kid. And as the, by, the, by the time you're a few chapters in, you just, you just want him to go away. He's like the kid on the playground. You're just like, buzz off. Knock it off. Leave me alone. And, and, and there's this scene in the story where he, uh, they, 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 the, the ship lands on an island and Eustace wanders away because he doesn't want to do the work and he doesn't want to be around anybody else. And he wanders away and he, he ends up in this valley all by himself and he, and he, he finds a, a dragon that's dying there. And, and, and the dragon dies and uh, it starts to rain, and, and he's baffled. He's never seen a dragon before. And, 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 and so he, he goes for cover, and he finds himself in the dragon's cave and with, a, with a dragon's treasure hoard. And he begins to get greedy, having, uh, the, the, the story says, greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart. And he all of a sudden thought about how powerful he could be and how wealthy he could be, and all the others that were so mean to him would envy him. And he falls asleep there. And when he wakes up, he discovers that he himself has turned into a dragon. He doesn't discover it until he wanders out to the pool outside the cave and he sees his reflection. And over the next couple of days, he's just utterly distraught. And he begins to, to have this revelation of just what an awful person he'd been. He begins to see his insidious way of being with people, how his pride and arrogance is so hurtful to people. The words that he uses, his, his constant demanding of attention and his lack of gratitude. And he begins to see how poorly he's treated the, the rest of the crew over the, the beginning of this voyage. And he begins to come to a place of humility and repentance. But what's amazing is, and this is my, one of my favorite parts of any of Lewis's stories, is that he realizes he can't fix himself. He can't undragon himself. He can't, he can't get himself back to being a boy again. And in the, in the story, the Christ figure, Aslan the lion, appears and tells him that he needs to he needs to undress. He needs to get his scales and his skin off. And Eustace tries to peel the layers off, but no matter how hard he tries, his scales are still there. He's still a dragon. And in his own words, Eustace says this. When the lion said, well, I don't know if it spoke, but he, I think he said, you'll have to let me undress you. And I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty near desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. 
The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right to my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me be able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever peeled a scab off a sore place, it hurts like bilio, but it's such fun to see it come away. Eustace goes on and says, well, when he peeled the beastly stuff right off, there I was as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I'd been. And then he caught hold of me, and I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now, and I had no skin on, and he threw me in the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why I had turned into a boy again. That scene always grabs my heart because it reminds me that I can't fix myself. Only God can change me. But I do need to come to a place where I realize that. And I do need to come to a place where I realize I do need to be changed. It paints a beautiful picture of what takes place when someone's transformed by the grace of God and the new life that's experienced in Christ. And I love the, the final lines of the chapter where Lewis inserts a bit of narration. He says this, It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those days I shall not notice. The cure had begun. God's not, when he comes to transform our lives, it's not an overnight, immediate, everything's better. But the cure begins. And I want you to know this morning, if you're a prodigal, whether you're someone who's never been a part of God's family, never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, and your whole life you've been running, or whether you're a child of God who is running right now, you need to be willing to come and confess and, and, and humble yourself before God and allow Him to transform you. You're not going to fix yourself. It's only through His loving, gracious, and sometimes very difficult process that he is going to conform you to the image of his son. There's so much there we could say about the younger brother. But I, I want to mention what this, why this might be a hard saying for the older brother or sister in this room. You see, so often we think about the prodigal, the one who's running, the one who's doing his own thing, the one who's sinning it up, parting it up, squandering his money. But as we said at the outset, there's another son here who's lost. There's another son who has wandered from the father, not physically, but in his heart. Why might this be a hard saying for those of us in the room who are like that brother? Well, it means admitting that the father's love is not based on my good behavior. You see, this son, he lists his litany, his, his good works, the reason that the father should be Killing fatted calves for him. Look at all these good things, Father, that I have done. I never left home. I've worked hard for you. I've been faithful. I've always done what you asked. And here I am getting nothing. This son felt like he had earned the father's affection. Can you see how, how, how both of these sons are, are lost? 
The first son just is like, I don't care about you, Father. I'm doing my own thing. And this older brother who is pointing us to Jesus through this older brother is pointing us to the Pharisees. He said, look at our resume. Look how faithful I've been. You owe me, God. Often elder brothers obey to get things. They don't live from the loving acceptance of the Father. What's, what's often so difficult for those of us who have an elder brother mentality, and if you've, if you've grown up in the church and have by and large avoided like lots of crazy major sins, you're probably have an elder brother, elder sister living close at hand in your heart. This elder brother's sin was actually attached to his virtue because I've been good, I don't deserve this. Isn't it interesting? His sin was attached to his virtue. The reason that he was distant from the father was because he'd been good. Because he had been working and trying to earn the Father's acceptance through what he had done. Not living in the Father's love and letting his obedience minister out of that. His obedience was in order to earn the Father's loving acceptance. And this story is telling us he is just as far from the Father as the son out blowing his money on prostitutes. This is what's so hard for those of us who are elder brothers to understand. We look at the facts, we look at the information, and we say, look at this. I haven't done this, this, and this, and I have done this, this, and this. Boom, God, accept me. At the very least, do some nice stuff for me. And so when then junk comes our way, when suffering comes our way, when unexpected circumstances come our way, our posture can be like this guy and say, what's the deal? What gives? I've served you my whole life. I teach my kids the Word of God. We go to church. We tithe. I don't deserve any of this. In her novel, Wise Blood, Flannery O'Connor says of her character, Hazel Motes, that there was a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. This is a profound insight. You can avoid Jesus as Savior by keeping all the moral laws doing right and wrong and, and avoiding wrong and, and keeping your nose clean and being an upstanding citizen and you can still miss the Father because God owes you answered prayers and a good life and a ticket to heaven when you die. You don't need a Savior who pardons you by free grace for you and I become our own saviors. To believe in God's unconditional acceptance is so hard for those of us who are older brothers, older sisters, that God doesn't like at least keep some kind of tally, keep some kind of count. Come on. There's a system here for tracking these sorts of things. I love what Henry Nouwen wrote just in his personal reflection on this passage. He says, this is not easy for me to grasp. In a world that constantly compares people, ranking them as more or less intelligent, more or less attractive, more or less successful, it's not easy for me to believe in a love that does not do the same. When I hear someone praise, it's hard for me not to think of myself as less praiseworthy. 
And if you struggle with that, you don't have to raise your hand. You hear somebody praise, and you can go either one of two ways. Well, I'm a loser. Or, why didn't they send any of that my way? Your heart ever been there? I can relate to this. I don't know about you. He goes on to say, when I read about the goodness and kindness of other people, it's hard not to wonder whether I myself am as good, as kind as, good and kind as they or when I see trophies, rewards, and prizes being handed out to special people, I can't avoid asking myself, why didn't that happen to me? The world in which I've grown up is a world so full of grades, scores, and statistics that consciously or unconsciously, I always try and make my measure against all the others. Much sadness and gladness in my life flows directly from my comparing and most, if not all, of that comparing is useless and a terrible waste of time and energy. How many of you know that to be true? And it's so hard when our hearts are hardwired by a performance mentality to not look around and seeing people being honored and comparing. And all saying, I'm better than that. I deserve that. Or, man, I'm a terrible wreck. I can never measure up. I might as well not even try. That, that's a heart that at its core still does not understand the gospel. Understands that God doesn't measure us by what we do and how well we've performed this week. We're received based upon the merit of Jesus Christ by faith through grace. This story, for those of us who have an elder brother's heart, is a hard story to hear because it means admitting that the Father's love is not based on my merit and good behavior. And then secondly, the reason it's hard for an older brother is that it means trading resentment for gratitude. At first glance, the elder brother's response seems insane. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. Why can't he rejoice? Why can't he celebrate? Because this performance mentality it takes us to a place of, I'm owed, and then if I don't get what I'm owed, the next step is resentment. And he resented the Father's love. He was so blinded by his resentment that he could not look at what was right in front of him, that this lost son who had wandered from home is now back. Living from a place where you and I believe that God owes us we've somehow earned something from him, sets us up to be a resentful person. And a resentful and complaining heart is absolutely devastating to our relationship with God. Why didn't they notice what I did? She never calls anymore. Why didn't I get invited? Why didn't anyone tell me what was going on? We could just fill in the list. Keep going. Complaining leads to self-pity. Self-pity takes us to resentment. And that takes us to joylessness. And now one says joy and resentment cannot coexist. That's why there's a party right going on, right in front of him. And the sun is standing just like this. And we can chuckle all we want at the absurdity of such a thing. But I, I, I would imagine some of us have been in that same boat. God's doing something amazing right there in front of our faces. And we're like, why did it happen to me? How come I couldn't be a part of that? I didn't get invited to the party. And God's there beckoning us, inviting us in, and we're just like whining and nitpicking over the details or who he chose to invite in, 
who he chose to throw the party for. The antidote to this attitude is a heart of gratitude, of looking around and seeing all the ways that God has taken care of us, has blessed us. This son didn't, didn't it just completely passed over all the fact that the father had taken care of him his whole life. That this son didn't have to actually go through these miserable experiences that the prodigal did. He, 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 couldn't, he couldn't just see that his father loved and accepted him and then serve his father joyfully based on that loving acceptance. A heart that is grateful, a heart that is thankful, a heart that sees that all good gifts come from the father is a heart that's set up to do battle against resentment. And then finally, what might this hard saying be for each of these groups? Why might this be a challenge for whether you're, you're coming from a place where you know what it's like to run or you know what it's like to work your tail off and have a God owes me mentality? The reason that this might be a hard saying for both of those groups is it means that we have to believe in the Father's outrageous forgiveness. It means that we have to truly believe that we have a God who will cast our sins as far as the east is from the west and the sins of people that really annoy us, the sins of people that we're tempted to hate. He is willing to do that to the sins of our enemies. And we must believe that in our heart of hearts. A.W. Tozer once said, because God is self-existent, it means his love has no beginning. Because he's eternal, his love has no end. Because he's infinite, there's no limit to his love. Because he's holy, it's the quintessence of all spotless purity. And because he's immense, his love is incomparably vast, bottomless, shoreless, is a, is a shoreless sea. The question is, do I fully believe this with all my heart? Whether I'm the younger brother running off doing my own thing or I'm the self-righteous older brother, do I fully believe that I'm accepted and welcomed by the Father? The Father's arms were wide open. Do I picture God like that? I love Romans 15, 7 that says, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. Paul's point in that passage was that Christians should have a welcoming heart towards each other no matter what our differences are. But I love this, the, the basis of that. He says, Christ has welcomed you. He was the father there running down the driveway to welcome you into his family. That's, that's God's posture to you. And today, no matter where you are, no matter how far you might be running, no matter how firmly you've dug your heels in, the father's posture is still the same. His arms are wide open to you. The father, just like with the elder brother, is pleading with you to come in to the party. He's, he's pleading with you to come and join him at the table. If you sit down later on today and get a chance to read through this chapter, circle or underline in your Bibles how many times you see a reference to joy, to rejoicing, to celebration in all three of these stories. You see, when the son, when the daughter comes home, there's a great rejoicing in the house of God. No matter what it is that you have, have done, 
No matter how far you've wandered, let me just add that there's not a single person in this room who has gone too far away from home. There's not a single person here who's gone to a, a country that is off God's maps. You're being welcomed home by the Father this morning. For those of you who are frustrated and angry and a bit resentful, the same welcome extends to you. The Father longs to welcome you home with great joy. My question is, do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that the Father can forgive you no matter how heinous your sins and disobedience are? Do you believe that the Father is longing for you to join Him at the table no matter how impressive your righteousness might be? No matter how deep your resentment has gotten, no matter how much frustration and joylessness is in your life, the Father is, is calling you home to be in His presence, to join Him at the table. For some of us this morning, this is a hard saying. Because some of us don't want to turn back from our sin. Some of us don't want to admit that we've been depending upon our righteousness, our good works, our morality for God's favor. And this morning, God's calling us to humble ourselves and return home. As we pray this morning, uh, we want to just, as always, welcome you to linger as long as you'd like to pray. If you'd like to come up front and pray, we've got some folks here that would, would be happy to do so with you. Allow God's word to penetrate your heart. And allow this amazing story of homecoming, of welcoming, be your image and reminder today that God's standing before you with open arms. He longs to welcome you home. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a God who welcomes the lost and wandering. Some of us here have spent our whole lives just doing our own thing and maybe it's, maybe it's crazy, obvious sin, but maybe it's just, some of us just subtle, I'm going to do it my way. I pray that we would stop justifying our sin today. We would stop excusing it, rationalizing it, and realize that wallowing in the pig pen is wallowing in the pig pen. And that we would know that uh, you're a father, like truly, truly know in our, every fiber of our being that you're a father who, who welcomes home the lost every single time. A father who, who's beckoning the wayward to come home. You're not calling us to be servants like this son was willing to do, but you're reminding us that we're your sons and daughters. There's nobody in here who's going to get taken in and shoved in the servants' quarters, put in the spare bedroom. We're, we're getting welcomed home. Lord God, just convict sin this morning and, and bring about a spirit of repentance for our younger 
brothers, for our prodigals that are here today. For those of us who struggle with an older brother mentality. God, give us insight because this is a little bit harder to to see. This is a little bit harder to peel back because on the outside, we're looking good. we've, We've done what we're supposed to do. We've been obligatory, obedient kids. But inwardly, our hearts are far from you. This is harder to see in ourselves, I think, and our church. So God, I pray that your spirit would bring a a, a clear realization to an elder brother heart that, that lies within many of us. And I pray that we would be able to rejoice when you bless others. That we would understand that no matter what happens in life, being accepted by you, it trumps everything. Whether I lose my job, whether I get sick, whether, whether people don't notice our accomplishments, whatever disappointments come our way, I pray, God, that we would be anchored in your acceptance, your complete acceptance of us in Christ. The answer for all of us is the same, that we might trust Jesus as our Savior, that we might anchor our hope on the finished work of Christ upon the cross. And I pray, God, this morning that that we would see the cross in a fresh way, that Jesus Christ bore our sins upon his shoulders rose again from the grave as we sang about and conquered death. God, let those gospel truths be the anchor for our soul. Whether we're tempted to run off in sin or whether self-righteous pride and, and that version of sin is, is knocking at our door, that we would, we would come to the shed blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf and, and hold fast to the cross. Heavenly Father, speak to our hearts this morning. Bring conviction, but most of all, bring a clarity and a a turning from waywardness so that we might rest in the arms of the Father as he seeks to welcome us home. Now may God be your exceeding joy, Christ your only hope, the Holy Spirit your unfailing comforter in all your worship, in all your work, in all your troubles until Jesus comes. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.